Good morning, church. Good morning, church. For those who don't know me, uh, my name is Alex Woods, and I just recently got married. sitting right here. Uh, she doesn't like the attention, but I have to. Uh, I got to recognize you always. And my parents are sitting right behind us, so give it up for them as well. Woo! Thank you, too. We got some good friends here as well. So I'm thankful uh, for you guys. I'm thankful for the body. And I'm thankful for the pastors uh, for this opportunity to preach God's word. Um, but ultimately, I'm thankful to the Lord to preach God's word. Uh, ARC, it's truly an honor to be before you all today. Um, and let me pray for us, and we'll get right into it. So, Father, we thank you for your word. For your word is truth, sanctifies by your truth, Lord God. Pray that you speak to us through your word. And let us be reminded that this is the day that you have made, and we ought to rejoice and be glad in it. Help us not just be hearers of your word, but doers. And Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 So, y'all, one of my favorite moments during quarantine was watching one of the best documentaries to ever hit television. One of the greatest basketball, <laughs> basketball players of all time. And some may label him as the greatest. I mean, that's still up for debate. Put out a 10-part documentary called The Last Dance. It was the most watched documentary to ever hit ESPN. And back when I was a single man a long time ago, <laughs> my roommates here and I would literally uh, prepare our whole day just to watch each new episode. <laughs> Must see TV, as he would say, in a teary way. There was a, there was a point on watching this that really throws both of the Uh Check this out. LeBradford Smith, an NBA player, played for the Washington Bullets back in the 90s. And it was one night in which he had the best performance of his career with a total of 37 points. And, sorry, in Chicago. Jordan, on the other hand, was only nine for 27 that night. And for those who don't know what that means, that means that Jordan attempted 27 shots and only made nine of them. Very un-Jordan-like, very un-Goat-like. <laughs> Jordan claimed that Smith said a nice game, Mike, after the game was over. This was Jordan claim. The Bulls and Bullets just happened to play each other the next night in Washington. And Jordan told his teammates, Tomorrow in the first half, I'm going to have what that guy had for the rest of the game. Jordan went on to put, 30, put up 37, I mean 36 points in the first half and ended the game with 47 points. Years later, reporters asked Jordan if the story was true and, Smith, and if Smith actually said, nice game, Mike. And Jordan replied, no, I made it up. Like, if you think about that, that's crazy. Why would you, why would you make that up? And, and George said that he would literally make up something in his mind that would come from uh, the opponents just to get him amped up for a game, like typically. Like, this is what he typically did. Michael Jordan used made-up words from an opponent as his motivation to be one of the greatest basketball players to ever play the game in basketball. Michael Jordan used untrue words as the source of his motivation to be a great basketball player. Brothers and sisters, my question to you is, how much more should God's true words motivate us as laborers for his kingdom? Christian, we don't have to make anything up. We already have the truth. And my guess is, many of us here will say that the truth doesn't, doesn't dictate how we live. But does it? Does the truth of God stir your hearts for his kingdom? 
Does the truth of God cause you to want to labor for? Or does this truth feel stale to us? I'm concerned that we have, myself included, either have become too familiar with the gospel, that it causes us not to move, or we don't know enough about it, which prevents us from being motivated when it comes to our work for the kingdom. Again, I'm saying this as someone who has recognized this in my own heart. I'm, I mean, I work for Campus Outreach. I'm a campus minister. Um, and I'm not just saying this as someone who that this doesn't happen to. I think this happens to all of us. So, family, here's the overarching question for us all to consider. Does holy fear motivate your life? Does holy fear motivate your life? Let's take a look at what God's word has to say about this. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 to 15. We get there to say amen. I'll say, hold on, bro. The reason is follows. We walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident that we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and our hope is also plain to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us, so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, the one died, that, that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. This is the reading of God's word. So y'all, here we have Paul's last letter to the church of the Corinth. He wrote four in total during his missionary journey. And if you know anything about the Corinthian church, this church has some issues. Now, don't get me wrong, all churches have issues, but this particular church had to have four letters written to them. So you can get an idea what Paul was dealing with there. Like, these jokers are walling up. And that's the Alex standard. You don't want to hear me say that throughout the service. So first, first Corinthians, Paul addresses an egregious sin where he rebukes a son who was sleeping with his stepmom, and he tells the church to do away with them here. So that, that's what was going on. Um, and then next, there was a lost letter, one that we don't have, um, but that he makes mention of in First Corinthians. There was, there was a letter that scholars like to call a, a tearful letter or a severe letter, which, which communicated Paul's sincere heart for his church and how much he wanted, to live, he wanted them to live according to the truth that they've heard. And he makes mention of this in Second Corinthians. And then lastly, we have Second Corinthians. This is the letter that many scholars know as Paul's most personal, passionate, and heartfelt letter. Throughout the letter, Paul attempts to defend his ministry before the church of Corinth because the Corinthians have begun to listen to the words of, of false teachers instead of Paul's words that were actually from God. The Corinthian church liked these so-called teachers uh, more than Paul because they were considered to be more appealing outward. 
apparently they were better communicators than Paul. It looked more impressive than Paul. Their message seemed to be more flavorful than Paul's. So now we have Paul writing them to defend his apostleship and to plead with them not to look to these other teachers, but to take pride in them. And he taught and all the things that he taught them as a faithful minister of the gospel. So that's a little bit of context for you guys. As we dive into this passage in 2 Corinthians, there are three things that I want to bring our attention to coming from this text. Three things. Number one, true faith enlivens us to please God. True faith enlivens us to please God. Coming from verses 7 to 10, holy fear motivates us to persuade others. From verses 11 to 13. And then, true love empowers us to live in the power of Christ. True love empowers us to live in the power of Christ. Verses 14 and 15. So point number one, true faith enlivens us to please God. Verse number seven, we walk by faith, not by sight. So church, Paul starts out this passage by saying one of the most popular quoted verses to date. We walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, leading up to this passage, Paul had just fin- finished telling the church of Corinth about the comfort of God and how he comforts us so that we may comfort others. And from the start of his letter, Paul starts to defend his ministry. He goes through an explanation of his ministry, highlighting his competence. He then begins expounding upon the power of the gospel, telling the Corinthian church that we all have this treasure in Blake Trump, clay jars, so that extraordinary power of God may be shown to us. Paul then begins to talk about his own suffering. He goes on to explain that even now, as we grow in this outward tent, which is our bodies, we receive a new tent, a new resurrected body in heaven. But for now, in the already but not yet, Paul reminds himself, the people in Corinth, and us, that we walk by faith and not by sight. The word faith here is best defined as having a firm belief, trust, or confidence in someone or something. And what Paul is not alluding to in this verse is this faulty concept of blind faith, in which we are aimlessly trusting in something abstract or, or just having this like wishful thinking. That is not what Paul is talking about. Rather, it's a faith that is built on something tangible. And, you know, I would say that we all have some level of faith in something, rather it's like ourselves, our family, our abilities, the chair that you're sitting in right now. We all, we all have an expectation for all of these things. I mean, for yourself, you have faith in yourself because you know yourself the most. You have faith in your family because they show you love. You have faith in your abilities because you, you believe that you can do anything that you, you, you want to do. You have faith in that chair because you believe that that chair is going to keep you up. But true faith is having a firm confidence in who God says he is, what he has already done, and what he says will be done according to his word. Faith is trusting in the character of God and in the truth of the word of God. Paul wanted the church of the Corinth to know that although we cannot see all that lies ahead, stand firm, trusting in our sovereign God for what is to come. And, and y'all, this should make complete sense. Paul had already witnessed the Lord seeing him through so many hardships. So he was determined that no matter what happens, he was going to trust the Lord. God had not failed him. He was sure that that would change. Ultimately, this is what led him to employ the Corinthians to adopt the same conviction. And so it should be with us. 
And as we talk about faith, one of the key things that we cannot miss is that true faith is found through true conversion. There is no true faith without a sincere belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Repentance, belief, and trust are the prerequisites to true faith. And our belief in the gospel is what both ignites and sustains all true faith. So, y'all, although we may not know exactly what lies before us, we can stand trusting fully in our Heavenly Father, knowing who He is, knowing the things that He has done and will do according to His Word. And, brothers and sisters, think about your own life. All that, all that God has brought you through, all that He's bringing you through currently, when you thought that it was over, when you were, when you were set to give up, when all hope was lost, you said these words before I walk by faith and not by sight. And Christian, y'all, it, it gets a whole lot better for us. There will be a day that we no longer have to walk by faith and not by faith. One day we'll come to face to face with the one who sees it on the throne. And we'll get to enjoy his presence by sight. Crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Family, I long for that day. And so should you. But until that day, everything you do, do it by faith. When you at your job, do it by faith. When you're parenting your child, do it by faith. When you're serving your spouse, do it by faith. When you're just trying to make it through the day, do it by faith. And family, I'm thankful for the amazing examples of faith that we see all throughout our body. I mean, I think about Sister Tasha. I think about all that she's been through throughout this year. It's an amazing demonstration of faith. I think about uh, our church mom, Miss Teresa, whose faith has deeply encouraged me. I'm sure many, all of you, y'all, we have wonderful examples of people walking by faith and not by sight right here in our, in our body. And may we be encouraged by that. May we as a church continue to grow in what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. Fully trusting in the Lord with full confidence in who he is, what he has done, and what he will get done according to his word. This is true faith. Have you been a faithless Christian? Have you neglected to open up your, your, your Bible to see all that the Lord has said and done and has promised you? Have you forgotten all that the Lord has done in your own life? Has unbelief harmed you? Are you cynical towards the promises of God? Do you believe the worst about him before you believe the best about him? Those are just some questions to consider for your own mind. So you know, Paul continues his message of faith in verse 8 by saying, in fact, we are confident that we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So y'all, a, little, a couple verses before that, just like in verse 6 of this chapter, Paul tells the Corinthian church that he and his ministry partners are indeed confident, but would rather be away from this world and present with the Lord. He's telling the church that although I had this undeniable faith in the Lord, I would still rather be with him than away from him. And I think if there's anyone outside of Christ that should feel this way is Paul. Paul's missionary journey was crazy. Like, I, I would imagine at this point, like, he's been through enough. Like, he realized, like, man, it ain't it down here. Like, this ain't, this ain't, this ain't, this ain't it. I'm ready to be with my Lord. And what I appreciate so much about this verse is that Paul is just keeping it completely 100 with the Corinthians about how he feels. He's like, look, y'all, I have faith. Don't get me wrong. 
but I want to be home with my God. Straight up. And one of the reasons I also love this verse so much is that Paul has a good grasp on where his home truly is. He rightly understands the relationship between the temporal and the eternal for the Christian. He knows that eternity with God far surpasses this present earth and the things that it comes with. So church, I, I think it's great. If we can resonate with the first half of the verse, we can resonate with Paul's confidence in the Lord, believing that our faith is sure and fixed on Christ. I think that's completely amazing. But my fear for us, myself included, is that I think we have too tight of a grip on the temporary and not enough on the eternal. Right. I believe that some of us would actually resonate with this verse more if it was flipped around. You would really rather be here than present with the Lord. And this is not hard to see. I mean, some of us like the comfort of our homes, of our jobs, our retirement plans, our finances, our families, our friends, more than the comforts of heaven. Our faith is often pointed to the fleeting things of this world and not heavenward. We honestly need to take some time and ask ourselves, are we heavenly minded at all? Or are we just thinking about heaven as a next step from earth? Ask yourself this, are you taking joy in your heavenly home so much that others who don't know Jesus will want to take joy in it as well? Brothers and sisters, while we are here in our earthly bodies, may we live in a way that points to our citizenship in heaven, so much so that it will cause those who are not in Christ to want to know about it. May we demonstrate a beautiful picture of true faith and how we view the temporal on earth and the eternity with God. May we do so by God's spirit and his grace. Verse 9, therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. Again, because of Paul's faith, he says to the Corinthians, you know what? It doesn't even matter where I am. Whether I'm here with y'all or with the Lord, my aim will always will be to please the Lord. Paul's mind was completely set on doing the things of the Lord that would satisfy him. His faith in God was just that firm. He made up in his mind that even though he wanted to be with the Lord, he was going to do all that he could do on earth to please him. Notice, Paul is not aiming to please God as a means to attain his faith. Rather, he's aiming to please God because of what Christ has done, what Christ has done already in his life. So he's not trying to work for something. He's working from something. And that thing is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul's faith in God led him to want to please God. My question again is how many of us are this are, how many of us are this in our own pursuit to please God? Are we this way? Or are we more focused on pleasing ourselves? Are we committed to doing everything that we can to make sure we are satisfied without giving a thought to the living God? Brothers and sisters, I would encourage us all to do a sincere heart check at this moment. What kind of life are you living? A life for you or a life for God? A life that is aimed at wanting to please God or a life that is aiming to please yourself? A life that is aimed at wanting to please God is utterly committed to obedience to him and his word. As I think about what's pleasing to God, I can't help but to think about our Lord Jesus. Jesus did whatever he could do 
to please his father. Jesus even went to the cross out of a sincere obedience and commitment to pleasing God. Jesus, who was both fully man and fully God, died as a sinless servant to please God. How much more should we be committed to making sure our true faith in God is pushing us to please him? And saints, Paul gives us another encouragement in his verse. He reminds us that our faith in God and our commitment to pleasing him does not stop once we get the glory. It's not that we please God up to a certain point and then we're good after that. No, the good news is that we just won't have to struggle with it once we reach eternity. Pleasing God will truly be delight for us because of access of sin. We get to please God freely without any reluctance, apprehension, or laziness. Since I look forward to that day where we get to worship our Lord with our hands up high, without an inch of sinfulness within us. But until that day, may we please God and may we do it by faith. Because verse 10 tells us this, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So two quick important things that we should know from this verse. Number one, this verse is not speaking about the day of judgment where all Christians and non-Christians will be subject to hell or eternity in heaven. Number two, this verse is tailor-made for Christians. Paul is telling us what will we, what will we be all facing and how will we, how will we be rewarded um, the way that we serve here on earth. So the way that we serve here on earth actually matters, which means that what we do right now has eternal consequences. He was seeking to remind the Corinthians that how you live truly does matter. So just as Paul explained in verse 9 that our aim must be to please the Lord, Christians, we will be judged based on how we choose to please him. One theologian says this, it is possible to have a saved soul in a wasted life. Christian, are you wasting your life today? What are you doing to please the living God? Because, y'all, the truth is that we will be held accountable for how we choose to please him. That may happen here on earth, but it surely will happen in heaven. And saints, uh, I think this actually is a privilege for us. I mean, you might be asking, how is this a privilege? Well, because this type of judgment will not end your eternal separation from God. Versus those who don't follow God, the type of judgment they will face will not only result in zero eternal rewards, but ultimately, it will result in them facing the wrath of God. Sadly to say, there will be those who experience an eternity without God with an absence of hope. So may this truth not only cause us to do all that we can do to please God, but may this enliven us to share our faith with those who don't know him. The truth is, for those who don't know God, their end is not pretty. It's daunting. It's ugly. It's not pleasurable. It's excruciating and, and gruesome and miserable. Heresy, let us commit ourselves to do all that we need to do to please God. And let us do this with an undeniable faith, knowing that we will once see, one day see our God by sight and be held accountable. So true faith enlivens us to please God. That's point number one. And as we continue in verses 11 to 13, we'll see that holy fear motivates us 
to persuade others. Holy fear motivates us to persuade others. This is point number two. So, verse 11. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. So, y'all, Paul wanted to Paul wanted to make it abundantly clear to the Corinthian church that because he fears the Lord, he laid he laid down his life to labor for. Him. And as we've been learning all summer, this type of fear uh, isn't a sinful fear. He isn't talking about some sort of terror. It's an awestruck, reverential, joyful, loving fear. Recognizing that God is indeed God and man is indeed man. This sort of fear causes us to rightly identify who is who in the situation. Church, ever since sin entered into the garden, our relationship with fear has been jacked up. Starting with our first parents, Adam and Eve, to the people of Israel, God's chosen people, to our very own lives. As broken people, we tend to offer the fear that is supposed to be reserved for God over to other people and other things. Church, I want us to know that God is not pleased with such sinful fear. God wants us to rightfully fear him and him alone. He alone is God, and there is none like him. And y'all, I mean, this is a caveat. This isn't just something that we can just do when we feel like going. I mean, all throughout the Bible, over and over and over again, you hear God saying, fear me, for I am the Lord. So y'all, not only is it important for us to have this fear, but Paul emphasizes this, this same fear should also captivate and move our hearts so much that we have no choice to make God known. So this fear should cause us to persuade people. So turn with me, or you can just listen to Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 8. And the king, in the, in the year that King Uzziah dies, I, I saw the Lord seated on high in, in lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him, they each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of, of, of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the, the doorway shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I'm ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and live among the people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar of tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now this has touched your lips. Now this, now that this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who will I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. Y'all, as we read this passage, we see that the prophet Isaiah was floored by the glory and majesty of the living God. And as a result of seeing the Lord, he recognized his own sinfulness. I think another thing happened here as well. As Isaiah saw the Lord in all his splendor, he responded with a willingness to go. Here I am, send me. Isaiah was so awestruck by the Lord that it caused him to be ready and willing to do whatever he could do to please the living God. But the glory of the Lord causing him a proper fear, which prompted a willingness to be on mission for God. 
Is this true of us? Like Paul and Isaiah, do we too have a proper fear of the Lord? And does this fear cause us to make his name known? Or are we more like the prophet Jonah, whose sinful fear of man drove him away from God's mission instead of to it? Saints, God truly has a mission. And this mission includes saving lost souls. And Aaron, see, a healthy, godly, holy fear of the Lord should fuel each and every one of us to proclaim the kingdom of God to those who are lost. This fear should have us on fire to bring the good news all throughout Southeast, all throughout the workplace, within our families, within our friends, throughout the entire world. And I think what's important for us to recognize is that this fear doesn't just motivate us, it prepares us. Let me give an example. So I think fear for us is like a gold medal at the Olympics. Right now, athletes all over the world are competing for one thing, the gold medal. That's their motivation. But it's also what prepared them to compete. Hear me out. Because of that medal, these athletes sought to do whatever it took to achieve the goal, making sure they were fully equipped to compete. The medal both motivated them and prepared them for their mission to be the best. And so it should be with us. The fear of the Lord should not only motivate us, but we need to be reminded that it prepares us for God's mission as well. So this fear should, should cast out all sinful fear as we seek to share the good news to those who are perishing. But what if this is not the case? What if you're sitting here right now like, yo, talking too much, uh, I don't really feel this. I mean, I know this intellectually. Let me offer a few suggestions. Number one, pray. Pray. Pray that the Lord will cause your heart to be warm to who he is. And by his spirit, he will cause you to have a desire to share the gospel. Number two, invite. Invite other believers into your life. You cannot do the Christian life by yourself. God set it up that way. Surround yourself with godly brothers and sisters who will help stir your heart for the things of God. And lastly, go. And you feel like, yo, I know all of this. Like I said, you're talking too much. Get through it. Well, sometimes the best thing to do is just to do. Go tell someone about this fear right after church. So pray, invite, go. And if you're not yet a Christian, I want you to know that it is impossible to have a true fear of God without a sincere belief and trust in the finished work of Jesus. True fear of the Lord happens through true conversion. Belief in the good news of Jesus enables all who believe to properly fear God because Jesus perfectly feared God all the way to the point of death on the cross. Right. His holy fear caused him to be born of a virgin, to submit to the authority of his sinful earthly parents, to be slandered and chastised, to be beaten, mocked, and spat upon, to be nailed to a cross and die for the people that put him there, to be raised from the dead and now be seated at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf. And if you're not yet a Christian, he offers you the same fear through him. He offers you forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Would you believe on him today? So ultimately, y'all, holy fear is a true love for God and his mission. Holy fear is a true love for God and his mission to save the lost. And as we continue to think about holy fear as our motivation to share the gospel, 
rather than simple fear. Paul tells us this in verse 12. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. Here in verse 12, we see that Paul is telling the Corinthian church that he is not seeking to brag about himself. He, he really just wants them to recognize the real and fake. Paul is telling them, I'm a real one. <laughs> All the other jokers y'all have been up, they really like that. He wants the Corinthians to be ready to have a defense for any of these false apostles. These false teachers have been seeking to take glory in themselves and in their own appearance. They were most concerned about what they looked and sounded like and less concerned about what was going on in their hearts. Later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul called them deceitful workers. And y'all, as a church, I think this may be helpful for us to think about as well. Are we most concerned about what our pastors look or sound like? Or are we most concerned with their hearts and if they're near to Jesus? Do we want to show? Or do we want to grow in our understanding and knowledge of the Lord God? Do we want faithful ministers of the gospel? or unfaithful ones that just sound good. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5-6. through We never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. And now see, I want to be honest with you for a second. Coming into this sermon, I want to confess that I was tempted to want praise from y'all. I was thinking about how I was going to say this thing or that thing, how would I sound, how would I look, would this point land, would I get blank faces, more one-liners, all of that, thinking about all of that. But by God's grace, I came to a realization that if these are the things that are consuming my mind now, then I'm more concerned about myself and less concerned about God, his word, and his people. And ARC, I'm so encouraged that we have some great examples of pastors and preachers in our church that seek to, to glorify God and not themselves. Ones that we can be proud of and take pride in as Paul wanted. Ones that who are less concerned with their outward appearance and more concerned with their own heart. So, Pastor Tim, Pastor, oh, I'm sorry, Pastor D, <laughs> Pastor Tim, Pastor Babatunde, Pastor T, we are thankful for y'all's demonstration of true, faithful, godly ministers of the gospel. And church, maybe we continue to be mindful as we fear the Lord that to know that he cares more about our motive than what we appear to be doing now. So as we seek to make God known with a holy fear as motivation, may we be most concerned with our hearts and not with our outward appearance. As we think about when we hit the neighborhood, may we be most concerned about the message that we're bringing, and not how we look or sound. Uh, and this next verse clearly shows that the ways that the Lord chooses to work in us and through us are often contrary to what man expects. Check this out, verse 13. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So, you know, the, the Corinthians, the Paul was crazy because of his fervent commitment to God. He endured many hardships and suffering because of his, his faith in Christ, and he still continued to work for the sake of the gospel. Listen to what Paul is going through up until this point. This is chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, uh, starting at verse 24. This is what he says. Five times I received the 40 lashes, minus, minus one from the Jews. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received the stoning, I'd have been done right here. Right? <laughs> Three times I was shipwrecked. 
I've spent a night and a day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I've faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing, not to mention other things that is the daily pressure on me, my concern for all the churches. You know, this is what Paul was going through. It's a lot. Like I said, I've been done, maybe even before verse 24. Even though all of his suffering, Paul still remained fervent in his belief in Christ and zealous in his commitment to the gospel. And, and this is probably why the Christians, the Corinthians probably deemed him as out of his mind. He had a relentless pursuit and it came to pleasing God by making him known. Can you say the same for yourself? Has anyone thought that way of you? So compelled by the fear of the Lord that you are labeled as crazy or strange because of your faith in Christ. So faithful to the truth that no matter what happens, you continue to serve the living God. And y'all, no way am I implying that this is an easy task because I know myself, like as soon as there appears to be a hint of suffering, I want to throw in the towel. Or I finna throw in the towel as Bridget would say. But it gets hard, saints. If you continue to be persistent and committed to telling others about the fear of the Lord, even through our hardship, even when we don't feel like it, may our hearts be so committed to Christ that we have a relentless pursuit to make him known. So church, true faith enlivens us to please God. Holy fear motivates us to persuade others. And lastly, point number three, I'm not your way. True love empowers us to live in the power of Christ. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died. So, you we just heard about all that Paul has suffered. But the reality is what he suffered pales in comparison to what Christ suffered. Christ suffered because of his deep love for us. Because of his love. We should not only feel obligated to love others in the same way, we should be ready and willing to introduce those who aren't saved to the love that has changed our very lives. One scholar puts it this way. This is the greatest foundation for ministry, wanting to give something to others because Jesus gave you everything. The way you may love your wife, your children, your husband, your friends, your family, or anyone else that you can think of does not compare to the love that Christ has for those who are his. And even if you're not yet a Christian, Christ's love is offered to you today. The very love that you may be searching for in relationships and other things is only a love that can be found in him. Choose him and see what's, his, what's to his unmatchable love. So Christ died because of his love for us. Because of this love, Paul tells us in verse 15, and he died for all so that those who live should not only live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. So y'all, Paul, Paul ends his powerful plea to Corinthians by reminding them why Christ died in the first place. It was so that those who are in Christ will no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. Mark 8 uh, verses 34 to 35 sums this up quite beautifully. 
calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. For, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save him. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, the truth is that you are no longer the star of the show. You never really were. I know with the influence of social media, we can all feel like we're, we're the superstars of our lives. The truth is, we're not. The truth about Christianity is that it's not about you. It's all about the one that saved you. So you know, here's how you can see if you made your life all about you. Think about your thoughts. Are they more me-driven or God-driven? Are most of the ways that you start and end your sentences do they begin with the letter I? Or do they point towards God? Yo, we ought to recognize that there is no true life in Christ and him at the center. For the Christian, each and every day we wake up, we ought to be chanting the words of Galatians 2.20. For I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the flesh for the one who died and gave his life for me. May we always be reminded that in Christ, we've essentially swapped jerseys. Our names are no longer what we wear on our back. Jesus is. So y'all, true faith enlivens us to please God. Holy fear motivates us to persuade others. And true love empowers us to live in the power of Christ. Does holy fear motivate your life? May we be a church that seeks to put out faith in God put our faith in God, a body that truly fears God, the one that is compelled by love, all for the purpose of making his name known. May holy fear motivate our lives. Mm -hmm. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that saves us, Lord, that sustains us, Lord, that causes us to want to make you know, Lord, help our hearts if our hearts are callous to your fear. Help our hearts if our hearts are callous to wanting to make you known. I pray that we just wouldn't be hearers of your word, but doers. But I pray for those who don't know you, but that they would be compelled by our love that we receive from Christ. So we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 There you go.